name is Barb Quaintance, and I am a VP at AARP, and it's my great pleasure to be responsible for the AARP Purpose Prize. Um, thank you to IdeaGen for having us and being such a terrific supporter of the Purpose Prize. Let me just tell you two minutes about it, one minute really. Um, the Purpose Prize is the only national award that celebrates 50 plus founders of nonprofit organizations. These are people who saw a problem, went after it, used their skills and their lived experience to, to use innovative solutions to problems that uh, they see in their community or even around the world. Um, we have five Purpose Prize winners every year. They receive $50,000 from AARP plus a year of support for their organizations, such as um, board relations, leadership coaching, data analysis, etc. It's our goal at AARP to not just celebrate the individuals who win the Purpose Prize, but also to help strengthen their organizations for lasting impact. I am delighted today to introduce you to Sharon Rush, who is one of this year's Purpose Prize winners. Um, Sharon is the CEO and founder of Nobility. And um, I'm not going to try to tell you what it does because you have the expert here to hear all about it. So, Sharon, thanks for joining us today. It's so nice to see oh, you. Oh, thank you, Barb. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, this great experience of uh, being part of the Good. Purpose Prize community. Well, first of all, tell us about Nobility. What is its mission? What are What is the work that you do? Nobility is, um, and I should um, note, the, the spelling of our name sometimes confuses people. It's nobility, K-N-O-W-B-I-L-I-T-Y. And we were founded to address the problem of digital equity, the equal access to technology for people with disabilities. And those are people with disabilities of all kinds, people who are blind, deaf, mobility impaired, who may have cognitive or emotional disabilities. and the idea is that as we, our modern world uses technology so much more widely and deeply and um, for, for very basic life functions that people with disabilities should have equal access to those opportunities. So that's, that's our work. I will tell you that I thought I was pretty good on this issue until uh, Sharon enlightened me about some of the ways that AARP can do better around technology accessibility, which we really appreciate. Um, Sharon, tell me about you. What drew you to this work specifically? Well, it was it, it was an interesting path because I, I honestly didn't anticipate, um, I, I didn't anticipate that I would be founding an organization. I was working for an organization that served people with disabilities, Easter Seals in Central Texas. And um, I'm in Austin. It was the mid, late 90s. And of course, technology was m really transforming my town, my city. Uh, the, the startup community was very active. People were starting technology businesses. IBM was here. A lot of, a lot of activity around technology. And my job at Easter Seals was to find employment for people with disabilities. And as more and more technology companies came in, I, of course, turned to th these new employers in the town and, and started expecting I would find opportunities for my stakeholders and my constituents 
Well, it didn't turn out to be that way. And it was because of the barriers in the way the technology was designed. So people with disabilities could not be hired for technology jobs in many cases because the technology itself was not accessible to them and the screen reading or other assistive technologies that they used to access the web and electronic communications. So that barrier to me didn't make any sense. I had some background in technology. I had an associate's degree in computer science from when I was very young. And um, and I knew that technology did not have to have those bar- barriers. They weren't, they weren't necessary, but that the people who were making the technology probably were simply unaware of the fact that those barriers had been built into the way the technology was designed. So we started an awareness campaign, and I was at Easter Seals. I went around town, talked to other entrepreneurs, other nonprofits who advocated for people with disabilities, to the city of Austin and their digital divide initiatives, and just really sort of made the rounds talking about it. And we started this collaborative effort where we were appealing to the tech sector to learn about accessibility. and then to act on on what they learned by creating accessible websites and applications for nonprofit organizations. It was very fun. It was it was a hackathon, I guess, but at that time there wasn't the word hackathon. So um, so it was a really great collaboration for a couple of years. And then Easter Seals got a new CEO who said, "Wait a minute, this isn't what Easter Seals does. We we're a rehabilitation organization." We don't we don't mess with this technology, and so she wanted to shut the the program down. But by that time, we had quite a bit of um, interest and momentum from both the tech sector and the nonprofit community, and so um, it was startup culture in Austin. And a number of people who were involved in the collaboration said, "Well, Sharon, let's just start our own nonprofit and uh, let's keep this thing going." And it, and so we did. <laughs> so it was kind of an accidental, uh, uh, happy accident. But uh, it, it 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 wasn't like I set out to start a new organization. I just had to ad- continue to address this problem. So I think that makes you a social entrepreneur. That's a fancy title, but that's exactly <laughs> what you did. You, you were entrepreneurial. Yeah. Um, Sharon, I've heard you talk about this as a civil rights issue. Can you just say a word or two about that? Well, you know, when you talk about equity for a group of people, for a marginalized group of people, it it does, and and maybe that's my my upbringing too. The fact that I came of age, I was a teenager during the '60s and '70s, and the civil rights movements and uh, women's liberation movements, and the idea that people who have been traditionally left out of opportunities have rights and and should be included, and I've come to see this need for digital equity and digital inclusion very much as a civil rights issue. And, you know, Barb, if you think about, I mean, I, I've always felt like that since we started Nobility. But I think if there was a silver lining to the global pandemic, it was the fact that this issue became really undeniable because when you're asking people, or expecting people to do their grocery shopping, their go to work, go to school, um, engage in social and civic activities, all of those remotely from home using technology, 
you can no longer say that, oh, well, people with disabilities, we'll get around to that one of these days. We'll, we'll think about that later as we build out our technology. It becomes a right. And, and even the, the United Nations, the, uh, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, there is a, a section in there about digital inclusion and the right that people have to equal opportunity to online information, exchange, interaction. Yeah. I, uh, Sharon knows I have a child with multiple disabilities and he is nonverbal. And so he uses an iPad to communicate basically. And I realized Sharon that I had just sort of let go of the thought that he would be able to use the web um, in any meaningful way because it just wasn't accessible. So you have changed my view of the world and I appreciate that. Tell, tell us about how you measure success at Nobility. Um, is it the number of websites you interact with? Is it training sessions? Tell us a little more about that. It's, it, it, measuring success is kind of tricky for us because when you're talking about we make the web more accessible, well, that has impact on tens of millions of people. They're estimated there are a billion or more people in the world who have disabilities, some of them temporary, some of them permanent, people acquire disabilities. So that kind of access, we feel, has this global impact on the lives of millions and millions of people. But to because you're addressing the root cause, you can't, you, uh, like I can't claim, nobility has changed the way the world works, even though that is our goal. Um, but that is ultimately how we look at success. Is the web becoming more accessible? Are people more able to interact, to use the web? But for, you know, we have to report to funders and to our, our community. We do talk about, we've done this many trainings, this many people have attended AccessU, which is our annual training conference. Um, we have this many people with disabilities who've been trained and are now placed in jobs. Um, students with disabilities that we've helped maybe by empowering their teachers to use technology more effectively in the classroom. So we, we do try to track those kinds of numbers, but ultimately we, um, we think that our success will be measured when this is no longer an issue and that technology is designed excessively from the start in the way that the, uh, the built environment is now. You know, you can't become an architect if you don't understand about wheelchair ramps and elevators and the width of doors for wheelchairs. And that's kind of where we're headed, we're, what we're hoping for in, uh, in our work, that, that it becomes integrated into the way technology is designed and thought about and it's it we're a long way from there still Let, let's step back even just a second if we could i imagine people who are listening to this are thinking okay i get like closed captioning that to me or you know uh, captioning in a particular way what just give us two or three other help us <laughs> broaden our thinking sure yes three other ways to make the web more accessible well one of the I, I think one of the um, 
the easiest things to understand is is the way that blind people interact with the internet. And that's um, maybe not the largest group of people with disabilities, but it's easy for people to understand that if you can't see, you might have trouble navigating a, a, a screen. And so the screen reading technology is called an, one of many kinds of assistive technologies. And there are coding techniques that allow a screen reader to understand the structure of the page. Um, you know, if you are sighted and you look at a web page and you see the big headings, then you know these are sections and you can kind of browse through them. You can do the same thing in the code so that so that assistive technology has access to that same structure. People who are blind can't use a mouse. You can't point and click. So you have to have another way to move the focus of the page to those clickable elements. So if you've got buttons or um, links, you have to make those accessible and operable from the keyboard. So you would you you need to be able to use the tab key or the arrow keys to be able to move around the page. That's not always the case. And the languages of the web, the basic language, HTML, is pretty inherently accessible when it when it's used in, in the proper semantic structure that, that it was um, designed for. But you know, technology people love shortcuts and um, and and they tend to design for themselves, thinking, oh, this is slick, this is cool, I'm gonna do these things, I'm gonna use this. Uh, JavaScripted interactive language, and then they don't always bring over the accessibility features that are that are built into the the language. So the there's a, a group at the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, that focuses on accessibility. It's called the Web Accessibility Initiative. They build standards that that tell designers how do you make how do you make your applications accessible, and their principles are that content has to be perceivable, whether you can see or hear or not, it's perceivable however you perceive things. You might use a, um, a braille display. So you, there are, another assistive technology is this um, refreshable braille where the screen reading technology goes through and it changes the text to dots on a, on a little output device that people can feel with their fingertips. So perceivable, operable, I have to be able to operate it even if I can't use a mouse if through different kinds of techniques and think about mobile phones, how you use those, um, those like, oh, what are you know, the, the screen? Like when you're swiping on a screen? Swipe, yeah. swipe yeah. is the word I want. Yes, the swipe, the two finger swipe, and there are those kinds of signals where you, um, where where you can operate it in different ways: perceivable, operable, understandable. Plain language is really important, and robust. In other words, that the content that's there can be discovered, used, and understood on different kinds of devices because people with disabilities may use uh, different than the typical user of the mouse and the screen. So it sounds like the technology pretty much exists to do this. It's a matter of actually doing it or being aware that this is a, 
a necessary component of of whatever that might be. Can you can you give is that fair? Is that a fair characterization? That's exactly right. The technology is is absolutely there to do to do um, to create accessible interfaces and make information accessible for people with disabilities. It's a matter of awareness and and I think requirements too. Yeah, requirements. That's important. Can you give us an example or two of what you consider some successes that you've had via the trainings or the access you whatever, where you sort of turn a light bulb for people and it really made a difference in their work? Sure. I love to talk about that. We are we are by nature, I think because we started as a collaboration, we are by nature collaborative. So we share information widely and freely. I mentioned our um, AccessU conference every year. We bring people together, both as teachers and learners, to share best practices and ideas for accessible design. Um, every year we've had more and more people attend. During the global pandemic, I think we were the first to do a fully, we did the entire conference completely as a remote experience with all the keynotes, the social events, the classes, everything was was live streamed and available, captioned, um, audio described when that was necessary. So, um, so those, I think that that was a big success for us that we were able to do that. It's an important part of building the community. I think another success that Nobility has is that sense of community. I th there are many, many more um, commercially driven accessibility consultancies these days for a lot of reasons. I think the global pandemic, as I mentioned, raised awareness and people thought, oh, well, I can use this expertise and, and make money on it. And it's a, it's a viable business opportunity. Well, in every single one of those companies that if you go looking around, Nobility has some has contributed to the roots. Like we have people in leadership positions who came through either the AIR program or AccessU at Google, at Apple, um, Level Access, DQ, all these, all these large companies that are known for their accessibility initiatives. We have contributed... Um, expertise and um, in many cases people with disabilities who now work at those organizations. Um, we have a summer internship program that's been very successful through the um, Texas School for the Blind. We have really empowered several students to choose careers in technology because we encourage them to believe that it's possible and also how to advocate for themselves within a, a company setting that I need tools that are accessible if I'm going to communicate with my peers. I, it, th those kinds of requirements for employment, I think, are something that we are really helpful to people with disabilities to help them self-advocate. Um, I'll tell you one story that I um, is pretty dear to me. We had a, a person... Uh, a blind woman, she mother of three kids, um, homeschooler, homeschooling her kids, trying to use the internet to homeschool her kids. She volunteered at Nobility, even with all she had going on, because she um, she loved the the mission and she knew how important it was. And um, after a few couple of years of of working with us, 
we introduced her to a uh, global online publisher, and she now works full time as a, her kids are are older, and she works full time as a as an accessibility expert for a global publishing company. And we have several stories like that of people who have worked with us as volunteers or as program participants, and then go on to careers in accessible technology at major tech or publishing or retail companies. And, you know, that's, that's really, um, that's really very satisfying. You have to feel good at the end of the day when you have a story like that to tell. That's fantastic. Sharon, I want to use the last, last couple of minutes we had to turn away from nobility per se. And um, as you say, you were an accidental uh, founder <laughs> of Ocean. It's, um if, if there are people out there thinking, you know, this particular issue or problem is really important to me and I don't see it addressed in my community and I want to start my own organization, what advice would you give them? Or what are the must-dos or maybe a couple of please-do-not-dos that you would offer? Well, I would really advise people not to think or try to do it alone. You have to have a good... Uh, you have to have community support. I mean, as I mentioned, I was really encouraged to do this because um, I wasn't alone in seeing the need and and I had a good set of board members and supporters to to help get started. And also I'd say that you should you should have such belief in your ability to address this problem that that you don't get weary of it that it's important enough to you that you would stay with it for a while because i i see often and i've been reading a lot lately about the burnout in the nonprofit community because the problems can seem so large and so overwhelming that after a while you just get tired and I think you have to be you have to be ready to the fact that this is going to be a long-term commitment. You have to really understand that and and be sure that you are emotionally prepared for that. Honestly, I didn't think that we would still be talking about accessible technology design 22 years later. I thought this would once we raised awareness in the tech sector that they would start building things accessibly, but it hasn't turned out to be true. So I think you have to know that as much as you think this is a solvable problem, it may take a while and you should have that long-term commitment. That is really good advice. You know, whenever people ask me, what do the Purpose Prize winners have in common? The first word that comes to my mind is tenacity, right? These are not <laughs> small problems that you've attacked and um, they don't get solved overnight. So... Jared, is tenacity a nice Jared, word for so stubbornness? Um, <laughs> I take either one, you know. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Thank you for telling us about this really important work. And um, I just couldn't be more proud to be in conversation with you. So thank you very much. Oh, Barb, thank you. This has been a, just a phenomenal experience. And I'm so grateful to be part of this community. I've learned a tremendous amount from my uh, from my compatriots and my the the folks that I've met through right. this process. So thank you. Great, and thank you to Idea Gen for letting us shine a spotlight on Sharon Rush and Nobility. Thank you much.